please turn to Genesis 48. After this, Joseph was told, Behold, your father is ill. So he took with him his two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim, and it was told to Jacob, Your son Joseph has come to you. Then Israel summoned his strength and sat up in bed. And Jacob said to Joseph, God Almighty appeared to me at Luz in the land of Canaan and blessed me. And he said to me, Behold, I will make you fruitful and multiply you, and I will make of you a company of peoples. And I will give this land to your offspring after you for an everlasting possession. And now your two sons who were born to you in the land of Egypt before I came to you in Egypt, they are mine. Ephraim and Anasseh shall be mine, as Reuben and Simeon are. And the children that you fathered after them, they shall be yours. They shall be called by the name of their brothers in their inheritance. As for me, when I came from Padan, to my sorrow, Rachel died in the land of Canaan on the way, when there was still some distance to go to Ephrath. And I buried her there on the way to Ephrath, which is Bethlehem. When Israel saw Joseph's sons, he said, Who are these? Joseph said to his father, They are my sons, whom God has given me here. And he said, Bring them to me, please, that I may bless them. Now the eyes of Israel were dim with age, so that he could not see. So Joseph brought them near him, and he kissed them and embraced them. And Israel said to Joseph, I never expected to see your face. And behold, God has let me see your offspring also. Then Joseph removed them from his knees, and he bowed himself with his face to the earth. And Joseph took them both, Ephraim in his right hand toward Israel's left hand, and Manasseh in his left hand toward Israel's right hand, and brought them near him. And Israel stretched out his right hand and laid it on the head of Ephraim, who was the younger, and his left hand on the head of Manasseh. Crossing his hands for Manasseh was the firstborn. And he blessed Joseph and said, The God before whom my fathers Abram and Isaac walked, the God who has been my shepherd all my life to this day, the angel who has redeemed me from all evil, Bless the boys, and in them let my name be carried on, and the name of my fathers, Abram and Isaac, and let them grow into a multitude in the midst of the earth. For when Joseph saw that his father laid his hand on the head of Ephraim, it was evil in his eyes, and he took his father's hand to move it from Ephraim's head to Manasseh's head, and Joseph said to his father, Not this way, my father, since this one is the firstborn. Put your right hand on his head. But his father refused, and he said, No, I know, my son, I know. He also shall become a people, and he also shall be great. Nevertheless, his younger brother shall be greater than he, and his offspring shall become a multitude of nations." So he blessed them that day, saying, By you, Israel will pronounce blessings, saying, God make you as Ephraim and Manasseh. Thus 
He put Ephraim before Manasseh. And then Israel said to Joseph, Behold, I am about to die, but God will be with you and will bring you again to the land of your fathers. Moreover, I have given you, rather than to your brothers, one mountain slope that I took from the hand of the Amorites with my sword and with my bow. In 1943, after a successful campaign in northern Africa, the Allied forces invaded Sicily. Mincemeat, Operation Mincemeat was the code name of a daring, deceptive maneuver that paved the way for a relatively easy conquest of the island of Sicily. British officers used a decoy, dropping a dead man who had perished of rat poisoning in the Mediterranean off the coast of Spain. Spain being on friendly terms with Nazi Germany at that time. This corpse then was found by an Iberian fisherman just as the British had foreseen and the Iberian fisherman transferred the corpse to the Germans for investigation, just as the British had foreseen. The corpse was dressed up as a naval officer with top-secret papers revealing the bogus plan for an invasion of Greece, not Sicily, so making the Germans believe that the imminent invasion or landing in southern Europe would occur in Greece and not in Sicily as the Germans has thought. As a result, the Germans withdrew forces from Sicily, opening the door for the Allied forces to take the island. When the British officers were asked why they were so confident that this, their ruse, and it was a fairly crude one at that, would work. They replied, that's because the Germans only think in straight lines. We are all Germans, did you know? (laughs) We are all Germans. We think in straight lines. We think from here to there. We think in terms of an expected order of things. We plan in terms of conventional ways of doing things. And there's nothing wrong with it. In fact, that is all that we should be concerned about. But you, my friend, you and I, we both know, we ought to know that God is a God of wonders and a God of corkscrews. As one British preacher once said so well, he is not a God of straight lines. He is a God of reversals. He is a God who turns the world upside down. And with him, the last shall be first, and the first shall be last. Now, we have our straight lines, but God crosses his hands. And this is pictured in the final scene of Genesis 48, where Joseph is highly displeased The Hebrew is very emphatic. It was evil in his eyes, seeing his father Jacob, a blind man at this point, putting his right hand on the younger son, Ephraim, and not on the firstborn, Manasseh. 
a straight line would require Jacob's right hand resting on Manasseh, not Ephraim. Cultural convention demands preference of the firstborn. And this was a long-standing, sacred tradition. But Jacob acts in defiance of tradition. Like a preacher who in a regular Sunday morning worship service baptizes a baby doll in the name of the Father and in the name of the Son and in the name of the Holy Spirit and the congregants witness it and they hold their breath and they think, what is he doing? He profanes what is sacred. Well, this is what you see here. But if all you see is Jacob acting in defiance of a long-standing and sacred tradition, You'd miss the point. Jacob does not only act in defiance of tradition. Jacob acts in God-like fashion. Crossing hands. Crossing Joseph's expectation and everybody else's. Saying, I know, my son. I know. No mistake has been made. This is God's way. This is God's blessing. This time, Jacob doesn't take the blessing from the firstborn as he once took it from his brother Esau by deceiving a blind man, his own father, an outrageous thing to do. This time, he is the blind daddy. And this time, he does not act in deception. He acts in faith. This is an act of faith. Oh, this divine irony that is built into the scene. It is almost as though God has set it up for Jacob to get something straight, to rectify something, some unfinished business from the past, and to confirm that he is on the right path. He's with him. And that's all that matters. Jacob is blind, but he is in full sight of a reality that he has come to see in the long years of his pilgrimage on earth. Years in which he saw God crossing his hands many times, teaching him that with God, things are not what they seem to be. One may appear to be blessed, but God has other plans that are not found at the end of our straight lines from here to there. They're not found at the end of our straight plans. Jacob crossing his hands as God's agent of blessing is as good as God crossing his hands. This is what you must see. And Jacob acting as God's agent of blessing is in fact anticipated in the whole of chapter 48. So that this final scene, which is the climax of this text, is almost <laughs> inevitable. Almost inevitable. Now, allow your eyes to scan the text and you reach a first summit in Jacob's deathbed reflections. These are good words to listen to. Verse 3, El Shaddai, God Almighty, appeared to me at Luz in the land of Canaan, 
and blessed me. El Shaddai, God Almighty, who does what he pleases, when he pleases, how he pleases, who asks for no one's advice, God blesses Jacob. This statement is speaking volumes because it activates an entire biblical narrative. It leads you back to Genesis 28 to a night when Jacob was a fugitive and he had a vision and there was a stairway to heaven and on top the Lord making promise to Jacob that he would go with him wherever he would go and that he would bring him back home in the end. But Jacob had just cheated his brother out of the right of the firstborn by making a fool out of his blind daddy, Isaac. You know, today, older people may not get the respect that they should have, but in those days, that was different. What Jacob did there was an absolute outrage. So, he was not only a fugitive of justice, fearing that his brother would murder him, and that was Esau's intent for many years. No, he had gambled away any hope of ever meeting with God's favor, if I may say so. No, make no mistake about it. At this point in Jacob's life, he was a loser. He was a drifter. He was alone. He was a failure. And he was an outsider. Now looking in with a very, very uncertain future. But it was where God wanted him. And he showed Jacob that he didn't need his conniving and scheming efforts to get ahead. He pronounced him blessed anyway, making him the younger, the next patriarch of God's people. As God had once told his mommy when the two boys were struggling in the womb, he said, the elder shall serve the younger, the last shall be first. God crossed his hands in blessing Jacob there at Luz. And all this is implied in verse 3 in this brief recap of the history of the life of Jacob. The entire biblical narrative is activated in these few words and is therefore pregnant with meaning. But then there is a second clue built into the text, and you'll see it in verse 5. Here, old Jacob claims Ephraim and Manasseh, the two sons that were born to Joseph in Egypt, as his own sons. Now, this is easily overlooked, but this is also highly unusual. Nobody would do this. I don't know of anyone who has done this. This is extremely out of order. Have you ever seen a granddaddy whose son is still alive and is doing very well for himself, adopting his two children? 
And note also, Ephraim, the younger, is named first, which, of course, is already anticipating the climax of the chapter, the blessing that prefers the younger over the older. But not to get ahead of ourselves, let's look at this scene here on its own merits. For in claiming Joseph's two brothers, uh, two sons, excuse me, the two brothers, he also makes Joseph his firstborn by choice. Not by right, that would have been Reuben, but by choice. Because through his two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh, Joseph was given a double portion, the portion of the firstborn. One-sixth, not the twelfth part of the inheritance of Israel in its infancy. Joseph, Joseph, the lost, forgotten, the last, is the first of his sons. He's crossing his hands already. In so many words. And this, of course, leads then to the final scene of crossing hands. Here is the climax. God doesn't think in straight lines, does he? It's not that he isn't capable of doing it, but he doesn't think in straight lines, not when it comes to his salvation, the redemption that we all so desperately need. Here you do not want a God who thinks in straight lines because if he is thinking in straight lines, you know where we end up. You know where we belong. We don't want a God who thinks in straight lines. We need a God who crosses his hands. And to illustrate that God's ways are not our ways and his thoughts are not our thoughts, to illustrate that he doesn't do the way things are done in this world. In fact, he acts often in defiance to bring to nothing the things that we place so much stock in to illustrate that God masters in turning the world upside down, that he is a God of reversal. Let me remind you, brothers and sisters, that no one understood this better than God's Son who came from the Father's own right hand. Jesus Christ used these sayings of reversal. That's what he mastered in. I gave you one earlier today about exaltation and being humbled. And then Jesus often used this saying. He used it on more than one occasion. He recycled it in many contexts and teachings of his own. There are those of you who are first who shall be last. And there are those of you who are last who shall be first. So, for example, in Luke 13, where Luke records that his disciples came to him in anticipation and they said, will many be saved? And he said, strive to enter at the narrow gate. He is saying to them, my friends, you're asking the wrong question. The question is not how many. The question is how will anyone enter? And you ought not to concern yourself with numbers. You ought to concern yourself with entering. 
For I tell you, many will seek to enter, and they will not be able. And they will say, Lord, Lord, we ate and drank in your presence. And it was you who taught at our streets. We sat at your feet and we sat at your table. So the people that Jesus has in mind are religious people. In his day and age, these would have been religious Jewish people with a pedigree, with a heritage. And today we would call them confessing church-going Christians, confessing Christians, people who go to church. And Jesus concludes the saying by saying, they will come from the east and the west and from the north and the south. They'll come from anywhere and recline at table in the kingdom of God. But the first shall be last, and the last shall be first. You know what the gist of this is? That God is the God who crosses his hands. One may appear to be blessed, and yet not so. And what is of no account turns out to be a citizen in God's kingdom. You are not first because of your heritage. You are not first because you go to church. You are not first because of your parents who teach you in the fear of the Lord. But you are first by entering at the narrow gate which limits you to the cross. Here is where you must enter. And in order to enter here, you must humble yourself. You must understand that you are the last person who should go through. Here is where God crosses his hands for you. And only here, enter at the narrow gate. Uh, imagine you make bank deposits, old school. Nowadays... We use our smartphones to deposit checks. And we have apps for our bank. But it wasn't too long ago that you had to take your check to the bank. And then fill out the deposit slip. And then walk up to the teller. Or maybe even stand in line before you can talk to a teller to have it credited to your checking account. So you make a number of such deposits, thinking, all the while thinking that with each one of these deposits, you raise the balance in your checking account. After all your hard work and all your hard labor. But at the end of the month, you receive a bank statement showing that all your deposits and all your hard labor had a negative value. What you thought went into your account actually went out of it. Deposits are debits. What a horrendous situation because now you have nothing. 
you in fact have incurred debt. And so it is with works, even religious works, even the best of works, if you only think in straight lines. Works may look good, but if they are done for the wrong reason or out of a wrong motive, they don't invest in a heavenly treasure or a heavenly account. They only invest in things that perish and decay and they stink. God says, this is an abomination to me. And you may nurse the ambition of passing yourself off as a fine Christian man or woman, a fine Christian family, a fine Christian boy or girl, doing deeds to be seen, praying long prayers to be heard, giving alms and giving sacrifices so as to get credit for all people to notice. But God knows, and nobody fools him. God knows exactly what is and what is not. He sees the heart. But if you saw, if you saw Paul, you would say, that's the apostle? He sure doesn't look like a poster boy. And look at all the scars on his body. Or take Job and his three friends, the self-righteous trio of three friends. They look down on Job now that he was reduced to nothing. And they were thinking in straight lines because they said, oh, give glory to God, Job. Now, we all know that you have sinned. So tell us, what have you done? Look at yourself. They had no clue what was happening behind the scenes, how God would bring about a stunning reversal for the man who was sitting on the ash heap, the man that they now despised, the man who was clinging to his faith in desperation, faith in a God who seemed to have become his enemy. And that's what the name Job means, enemy. But God is the God who crosses his hands. The Lord makes poor and makes rich. That's what the book of Job teaches, among other things. He brings low and he exalts. He raises the poor from the dust and he lifts the needy from the ash heap to make him sit with princes and to inherit a seat of honor. Now, you may know that these are words from 1 Samuel chapter 2 from the song of Hannah. Hannah, <laughs> Hannah, that poor girl. Hannah was one of two wives of a certain man named Elkanah in the times of Israel's judges. And Hannah was childless. She had no children. She was barren. And her rival, Penina, she had all the kids, and she never tired to make sure that Hannah would remember, rubbing it in, reminding her that she had nothing, singing, Childless Hannah, God has closed your womb. But it was Hannah who had God's blessing, 
a case of God crossing hands. And again, Jesus used the saying of the first who is last and the last who is first in Matthew 15 in the parable of the laborers in the vineyard. And in that story, towards the closing of that story, there are those who have labored hard from sunrise to sunset. And then there are those who had only worked for a single hour. They were hired so late in the day, they worked an hour that didn't even break a sweat. And they were paid first so that everyone could see what they got. And those who were hired first, who had labored all day long, when they saw what they got, they were upset, they were angry, and they complained because they all got the same. Exactly one denarius, no more and no less. And so you might be sympathetic when you hear them complaining, you These people, they are last. And you've made them equal to us who were first. But the master replied, Friend, I'm doing you no wrong. Didn't you agree on your wages? You take what's yours and go home. I choose to give to this last one as I give to you who were first. And so... The last shall be first, and the first shall be last. The upshot of this parable is very simple. If you are not happy with grace and with a God who is not a respecter of persons, if you have no respect for God's grace, you might well be last. Jesus crosses his hands. You see? And there is no place where you can see this more clearly than in the thief or in the account of the thief on the cross. He was actually not just a thief. He was an insurrectionist. He probably had blood on his hands. He killed people. And Jesus waited all his life to cross that man's path. He was a criminal deserving of death. But in the waning hour of his life, God performed a work of grace in his heart. There's no other explanation because he ended up doing what no one else does. There is irony there. No one at the foot of the cross did what that man on the cross did. He defended Jesus against the mockery of the third man hanging on the cross. And then... He uttered the words that are so charged with theological meaning. We don't have time to unpack them tonight or today, but charged with theological meaning. Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Can you see what that man saw? Because all the rest of them didn't see it. That what appeared to be was not what was real. He saw that there was a kingdom and that Jesus is the rightful king. And he uses these words, remember me. Do you know what happens when God remembers you? 
He saw far more than the people who stood beneath the cross, and he was hanging there. But then Jesus' reply is even harder to forget. In fact, it's impossible to forget, isn't it? Amen, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Jesus is the God of wonders. Jesus is the God of corkscrews. Jesus is the God who turns the world upside down. Jesus is the God of reversals. Jesus is the one who crosses his hands. Can you see? Can you see more clearly now how this applies to you and to me? How this is, in fact, our only hope. There is nothing else. What can I do to earn God's favor? Hmm? What can you do to earn God's favor? All we have is demerit. All we have is a negative value on our account. It's called the wages of sin. All we can do is call on his name to save us, and he will, and he has, and he will yet save us. And then show us, Lord, show us the way that we must go. Teach us your ways. Are you learning from him? Are you following him? God crosses out our purposes and plans because we think in straight lines. And God crosses your path in Jesus Christ. And this scene of crossing hands, you grasp only in the full luster of Calvary. God crosses hands once and for all to bless you in cursing the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. What a story! What, what love is this? What grace! And I'm not tiring to tell you the same thing over and over again, because our life depends on it. There's not one of you who is any different or sits in any other boat. Your life depends on this. Whether you've been in the saddle for many years as a Christian, or you only recently found Christ, or you have yet to cry out to him for salvation, we all need a God who crosses hands. And we need a Savior on a cross who doesn't think in straight terms. We need a God of corkscrews and of unexpected reversals, a God who raises the dead and turns the world upside down by his grace. And so we have hope. We have hope, brothers and sisters, that will not die with us. Jacob's deathbed reflections and then his final blessing remind you of many Bible stories that have reversals in them. Jonah, Rahab, 
Zacchaeus, the tax man. Or the harlot that anointed Jesus' feet. All of these stories, all of these characters who are now blessed in God's kingdom because God crossed his hands to make them first who were last. And he does it. He does it freely because of his son. The gospel is a great reversal with Jesus at the center. Jesus is the first. He is with the Father from eternity. He is God, of very God. He is the first. He is the firstborn of all creation. He has preeminence over all created things. He is first, and he made himself last. And he became last to be first. Uh, only recently I discovered the gospel in the timeless children's tale of uh, the adventures of Pinocchio by Carlo Collodi. Pinocchio, that little wooden doll carved by the Tuscan carpenter Geppetto. Pinocchio is a born liar. He can't stop lying and his nose gets longer and longer and longer. And there's no trouble, no trouble whatsoever that Pino won't get into. And as the story unfolds, he has to go out into the world. He has to leave home. He has to go far away from home. And then far away from home, one misfortune after another one misfortune chases another. Eventually, he lands in the belly of a gigantic fish. All you can wait for here is to be digested, says a tuna. I don't want to be digested, Pino cries. I want to get out of here. Well, you won't. But I tell you, it's much, more, it's much more honorable to die in the open sea or in the belly of a fish than to perish in a frying pan. But suddenly, Pino asks, what is that light over there in the distance? Oh, that's another one who is waiting to be digested, says the tuna, always thinking in straight lines. But the one over there, who is waiting to be digested, is not just anyone. It's Geppetto, Pino's father who made him. And he set out into the world to seek his lost son until he found him at last, at the bottom of the barrel, in the belly of the fish. It's how God finds you, finds me. It's how God saves us. He crosses his hands. He crosses his hands to save us. And you, my friend, we all should bless him. We should praise him. We should put no confidence in the flesh your abilities, your gifts, your financial security, your religious heritage, your family, your parents. You ought not to make plans to make something of yourself to boast in. But know this, 
that God crosses his hands for you because he found you last to make you first for his glory. And maybe you think, you know, Martin, I don't know. I've messed up too many times. I don't even know whether there is a way back for someone like me. I don't even know whether God likes me or wants me anymore. Whether you haven't listened. You haven't seen. God is the God who crosses his hands precisely for this kind of thing. Isn't he? God still crosses his hands as often as you come to him in truth. He crosses his hands. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for being the God who crosses his hands, who pronounces us blessed, who justifies the ungodly through your Son, Jesus. It is exasperating for us to realize time and again how flippant we are with this wonderful, wonderful gospel and grace that has come to us and now appeared to all people, that you would do such a thing, that you would cross your hands for us. But as surely as Jacob did this as a blind man, you have done this in foresight of the glory that is coming. The blessing has only begun It has not been consummated. But as you are God and have been from everlasting to everlasting, your word will not fail. You will accomplish what you have promised. And we put our trust in it, our trust in you. In Jesus we pray. Amen.